HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. Coming to you live today from sunny Southern California, where the oranges are in bloom and there is a mega drought. And talking to you, talking to Mike Lewis today from Kentucky from the Growing Warriors program. Hi, and welcome to the show, Mike. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Little little cold and rainy today, but we don't have the sun. <laughs> so I just was talking to my friend Rebecca Burgess, who was down here giving a workshop, and she was out there working with you guys on your hemp project. You want to give a little intro on what you guys are up to over there and where you're pointing? Yeah, um, it's really exciting. Um, I, I have a, a lot of respect for Rebecca and the work that Fibershed does, and uh, all the help they've given us as we try to. Uh, recapture some of our uh, sustainable textile industry here in uh, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Um, we actually this year um, uh, part of our nonprofit work led us to um, production of the first uh, federally permitted industrial hemp crop since uh, about August of 1938, um, and we're growing that crop in partnership with Fibershed to actually produce some uh, American grown sustainable textiles. Um, so we're really excited to help drive some uh, some ag revenue back into some uh, rural uh, economies around the eastern part of our commonwealth. And can you a little bit talk about how you got into this? Like, uh, this community organizing stuff is different from farming and different from being a veteran. Uh, what was your... What was your learning curve like? You know, actually, I just—I uh, was actually just talking about this with someone this morning. I actually uh, 
you know, I started farming mostly just because I, I wanted some independence and I was tired of, uh, at the time in my mind, I was tired of functioning in the quote-unquote real world. So I kind of used that as an excuse to just go off and do my thing without uh, contributing um, to some of the, the ills I saw taking place in society. And my uh, actually what happened was my wife got pregnant. And a funny thing happened after we had the baby, I realized I needed m- money. Um, so apparently kids cost some money to raise. And um, I actually, uh, the week after my son was born, I, I cut uh, naively, very naively, cut 20 pounds of uh, salad mix from our garden and uh, literally walked into uh, our local high school and attempted to sell it. Um, anybody that's uh, <laughs> ever had any interaction with farm-to-school program knows that uh, seven years ago that was about the craziest thing you could ever do. Um on the after being looked at like I was an alien with about twelve heads, I got handed a stack of uh, paperwork that was about as thick as a an unabridged dictionary that I needed to fill out to to participate in in the program. And I immediately got back in my car and I called my wife and I said, "I, I think I've just solved every problem in the world." I said, "You you wouldn't believe what's going on." And I was convinced that if I just started telling this story about what happened, that we could change everything, and that was my uh, introduction into uh, farm advocacy and community organizing. Um, So it was initially quite selfish, just amazed that I, as a farmer, couldn't make a living in my own community, Um, and that sort of led me down the trail of starting to advocate for farmers, uh, really starting to try and replace some of the rural ag revenues that were missing from the economies. Um, And, you know, I I started down that path, uh, thankfully, um, and, uh, it's, you know, it's made me a better person and I think it's, uh, made me a better citizen. Um, it was through that work that I actually, uh, was preparing for, for a talk about, um, uh, starting a bi-local campaign in the eastern part of our state and the community there. And I came across the figure, um, a statistic that over a million, uh, veterans and active duty military personnel receive food stamps, um, and, that coupled with my knowledge that um, the vast majority, the largest percentage of our military comes from rural America kind of struck me as odd, thinking that people that for the most part grew up on food have now have to turn around to the government and, and get food. So we that was sort of how our nonprofit work started was just we just immediately started organizing veterans around community gardens and teaching them to grow, produce, and preserve their own food. There's there's certain amount of um, I'm sure one of this assumptions like people coming out of the military are having uh, you know major adjustments to the peacetime economy and maybe there's like trauma or rage or they are injured um, and I know that that's one of the issues that veterans like have to deal with in the rest of the world is people kind of looking at them as somehow, like, broken. I guess the question I have in my young farmer's perspective in trying to work with and support and be in team in a team way with people coming out of service, like, what are some things to know? I know it's hard to generalize, but how, what's the most productive way to approach people who are coming out of the military? And what should we not, how do we be most sensitive and useful in that engagement? 
Well, I, I think that it's um, it's short-sighted to to apply some sort of uh, broken stigma or something uh, along that lines. I think that, um, y- you know, you, you, first and foremost, they should be treated just like anybody else you would treat on the, on the side of the road. Um, as far as the potential for them to... Um, to provide labor or assistance on a farm, I mean, you've got someone that's perfectly suited to a high-stress, fast turnover, immediate reaction, complete attention to your surroundings. I mean, you have the... That is what the military is about. Um, and so, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to... I just, I guess, I just don't want to go down that road about uh, being broken because I, I think that's a misnomer. I think that, um, you know, we... It may be fine, but I think a lot of people are broken, and we, and we don't apply that stigma. Uh, broken or not, we have a right and a responsibility uh, to make sure that they're taken care of, fed, and can you know provide for their families with dignity. Um, and I I just happen to think you know we have a new decree from our uh, ag uh, secretary of agriculture, you know, to create a hundred thousand new farmers. Veterans have the highest unemployment rate in the. One of the highest unemployment rates in the employment sector, and they are well suited to working outdoors in challenging environments. So we just see a natural fit uh, to agriculture. So it seems also like those people are already like in the program, you know, registered, and you know, hyper tied into the state apparatus, and that they would be able to get support to do that work, to transfer a career and to, um, and to move into agriculture. Can you talk a little bit about the state of those services that are being provided? And um, I know that veterans are now getting um, socially disadvantaged status, which makes it easier to get loans and to qualify for land, uh, land loans. What, is, what are some of the strengths that are expressed in the way that veterans are able to get those services is what are some of the weaknesses that you'd like to see fixed? Well, I think the the strength is, um, you just said it, it's in the awareness. Um, it's in the understanding now. I, I think it's, uh, you know, this uh, four years ago when we started this, there wasn't uh, much of a farmer veteran movement, but now there's a huge national farmer veteran movement. So the amount of services and support groups that have um that have come on board is is tremendous. I mean, we you know there used to be three groups that did this, and now I I think I've got four groups in Kentucky that 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 support veterans in agriculture. Um, so I mean, just the amount of services and access to programs that are available um, is 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 a huge asset. Um, one of the weaknesses I, I think, ironically, is part of one of the benefits. Um, you know, it's uh, it's very easy as a socially disadvantaged farmer to get a loan, but um, you know, it's not very easy to understand the complexities and the nuances of farming, and let alone making a living farming. So, one of the one of the cautions that we always throw out is, you know, you don't maybe maybe you shouldn't be getting a loan. Maybe you should be getting some practical experience before you take on indebtedness, because a lot of what we we want to have is we want to have farmers that are you know yes we need a hundred thousand new farmers a year but we need a hundred thousand new farmers that aren't um, you know 
enslaved to the debt that they've brought on from from loans and programs that are opened up and now are in some cases federally mandated that we loan so much money to these socially disadvantaged farmers. So I think that programs are starting to open up. We have huge potential, but we still have a lot of work to do with back-end support. Um, it's really easy to get money. It's not very easy to save your farm when you get into trouble or have a bad season. And um, so the the devil's in the details, and I think that there's a lot of back-end support that needs to be still built. I think the the foundation is there, but we have a lot of support structure to still build to make sure that when we put a farmer on a farm, they stay on the on the farm. Um, you know, the, the last ag census, Kentucky lost 10,000 farmers in the last five years. 7,000 of those were new and beginning farmers. So that number there should should tell you that we're doing a great job of getting them the money and getting them on the land, but we're not doing a very good job of making sure they have the support systems, access to the markets, and the things that they need to stay there. So you're part of the whole Farm Aid Network and tapped into this whole generation of farm advocates and farm technical assistant providers and farm service providers that grew up out of the crisis in the 80s. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit, because I think one of the issues I see is that there's incredible need for, as you say, this whole infrastructure, the social infrastructure to provide service and assistance to these new farmers who are starting their businesses and getting going. But there's definitely a generation gap and a knowledge gap. And um, in the same way that there's not enough young farmers and new farmers, there's... um, a whole exiting generation of farm service providers who have experience with the programs, who've, like, dealt with crisis and change, um, and who have a lot of knowledge that they also need to pass on to the next generation of um, of, service, of service providers. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that i got to say, I mean, that's one of the things that I get most... Um most excited about and one of the the proudest things that I have is that connection to farm aid and I can tell you that they're um, they're doing a great job of making sure I mean we convene every year um, we have the young advocates it's one of the few one of the few areas I could still be referred to as young so um, you know we have these new and young advocates and then we have the older advocates that really are trying to share and pass on that knowledge um, and and build on that network um, but you know it, it it seems like there's never enough I mean there's never enough people to do the work that needs to be done um, and I'm not sure how we um, how we incentivize people to do that, um, you know, to take on such a, <laughs> a daunting task because it's a hard thing to, you know, to come to the aid of a farmer in, in trouble or even to make sure that a farmer doesn't get into trouble. Um, but I, I'm really proud of the work that Farm Aid has done to to help pull that knowledge. Every year we have these advocacy meetings right before the concert where we all come together and we get to share our stories and talk and, and it expands on that network and it helps us grow our collective knowledge and, and resource base. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, it, it probably needs to be doubled in size. Um, and it's just how do, we, how do we get that? You know, I'd say we probably need a 1,000 new farm advocates for every 100,000 new farmers. That would be my, you know... Um, so there is a lot of work being done, and we're really trying to capture those lessons of those initial first responders because it seems like we're, you know, we're not too far off another another small credit crisis here with the, with the drop in commodity prices of corn and beans. 
Um, so, I mean, how do we prepare for that is, a, is an ongoing question, but it is something that I'm proud to to be a part of and to be able to support um, with so many wonderful organizations. Well, we've just been uh, listening to talks about the New Deal and uh, the programs that grew out of the Depression and thinking about some of the work that's gone on in supporting small business administration and on a, on a, on a county level, on a, on a city level, like what does, what does, uh, sorry, there's a category of spending that's, that's important for building jobs and it infuses money a lot into infrastructure. Oh, come on, seven screen. You can do it. Oh, what did they call it when they made all that money that they were spending? To rebuild after the crisis. Uh, the now you've got me stuttering. Um, the <laughs> stimulus package. Stimulus. No. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Anyway, there you go. I joined you there on that one. Where that, that stimulus would go to supporting the job creation sectors and technical assistance, and you know, helping, for instance, um, accountants become more familiar and have training hours into. Green, green energy and distributed energy production and farming systems and helping those other service providers. And frankly, inside the gig economy, I see that as a major place is as so many people are working in a freelance context and from, you know, part-time this, part-time that, training up those people to also have some of the skills to be able to apply their graphic design and business advising and accounting to the farm sector uh, and there being good places where they can learn those skills in order to to use them. I just think about so many of my friends who have part-time jobs doing organic certification um, and so many people who have part-time jobs working for the land trust and have part-time jobs, um, you know, doing consulting. I just feel like if I look truthfully at the future of our sector, that so many of the roles that were traditionally associated with extension and being a full-time this or a full-time that are are looking more and more like part-time skills that you use kind of on a um, more ad hoc basis in in a contract way with other people in the economy. Do you see that too, or where do you see looking forward? You know, I that's a big missing piece. Um, I was actually just um, on uh, in a conversation I was having yesterday at um, at the at St. Catherine's College um, with some uh, with some farmers. Uh, you know, it's every time I go to a, a farmer training or any type of program, it's, it's almost like, hey. Here's another skill set you have to learn. On top of growing the food, we're going to need you to wash it, package it. Oh, wait, can you value add it? Can you make a jam? Can you make a jelly? And I'm, you know, I'm sitting here. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm a farmer. I'm not a marketer. I'm not an advertiser. I'm not a blogger. But that seems to be what we expect from our farmers these days. That seems to be the prescription for success. Take on more tasks. Do more work on the farm you know, promote yourself, build a brand. And I, you know, so I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a lot of people out there in part-time works and I, you know, that I think is a big thing that's missing in the, in the small scale sustainable agriculture network is that sort of mid tier 
lower-tier, mid-tier processing and support, um, even promotional advertising for, for farmers. Um, so, yeah, I think that if there's a huge labor force out there that, you know, it's working part-time, if we can find a way to energize them to help support and promote local farms and local agriculture and anything we can do to to relieve some of the work that as a farmer, you know, we, we have to do. Um, I, you know, I'm, I know that I'm three weeks behind on getting my blog post out, and that's probably going to affect my sales for my CSA this spring because I, I didn't get the blog out. But, you know, I had plants in the greenhouse, and I, and so it's like more and more. And then they come back and, well, you can get your microprocessor's license and make uh, chutney to sell at Kroger. And like, gosh, I, you know, how am I going to do this with five acres of vegetables in production? And then i got to go make a jam and and then deliver it. And it just seems like we keep asking farmers to do more and more. And so I think that what you just mentioned is a great uh, sort of stopgap for some of that. Um, and we're certainly looking at, at how we can start shoveling, shoveling uh, to use a, <laughs> an analogy, appropriate analogy, we can start shoveling some of this work over to people that actually have skill sets to do that, I, I think. Um, and, uh, and also what that does is it gets, um, I think it gets engagement. Um, ultimately, I think if um, we can engage consumers and the population in the, in the story of the farmer and start making some of those uh, community connections, I mean, we're, we're not connected with our sense of place anymore. And, um, you know, I think the farm helps do that. Um, having a relationship with the farm helps do that, but it's really hard to foster that. As a as a farmer, producer, a father, a student, whatever other you know, whatever else you have going on, so if there's access to those people, could you give them my number? Would be the short answer, I guess. <laughs> well, I hope they're just not too busy doing all that they're doing to listen to my podcast, <laughs> which I'm doing while watering. Um, yeah, the. I do, I mean, I look at some successful cases of that. I mean, I don't want to stay on this topic for too long, but I just look at, like, Brookford Farm in New Hampshire. They just screened their movie called Brookford Almanac um, about their super diversified. I mean, they did pigs, they did chickens, eggs, vegetable CSA, dairy, grain. They made their own cheese. They made their own quark. They made their own, they made their own flour and crackers. And... You know, they had a part-time person who did social media and a lot of, like, office work, um, which was really compatible with her being a mother. And she wasn't even, you know, super farming, um, although her husband was. And I just see that so many of those successful farms are able to integrate those kind of non-farm part jobs into their ecosystem. Uh, I think it's similar in the art world. We have this myth about, like, the all-powerful individual artists when, in fact, you know, most artists are coordinating a, a little team of students and, co- you know, other people who are contributing to the production of the quote-unquote art. Um, just a little last word from you on any announcements or things you think people need to know about. And maybe a little update on St. Catherine's College, if you have a quick second. Yeah, I, I, how exciting is that? Um, I'm, uh, I, as I... Uh... Um, St. Catherine's College, I think, is in its second year um, with the established the Berry Farming Program. 
um, which is uh, it's a program, it's a degree offered in farming and ecological agrarianism. It, it sort of teaches agriculture from the perspective of Wendell Berry's philosophy, um, which of course is tied into the 50-year farm bill and the Land Institute and all of that. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's a fascinating little program and what a, a, a daunting task for a little school to bite off. So I'm, I'm proud to be a, a part of it. Um, I actually will graduate from that program in December. Um, so I hope to, to leave there and be a good steward of, of that philosophy and to, you know, make the world a little bit of a better place with the knowledge that I, I gained from being able to participate. It's pretty exciting. Uh, I just, this, again, we were doing a screening in Berkeley, and I you know, mentioned that Wendell Berry had a wonderful quote. He said, you know, talking about land access and land values going up and speculation and development pressure. Like, well, it's clear that the value of the land is infinite. And uh, Joe Morris was on the panel, and he was like, well, clearly, you know, the infinite, the infinity is in the cycle. The infinity is the carbon cycle, the water cycle, you know, um, photosynthesis, the, the beast on top. And... Uh, I don't know. It's really powerful to see institutions growing out of ideas that are bigger than our current situation and being able to move out of uh, this, this particular phase of American capitalism towards uh, hopefully a better system, being guided in that work by the phraseology and philosophy of some of our best thinkers is truly exciting. So I hope to keep everyone well, here talk. I, I can tell you it's it's changed and enlightened my perspective uh, uh, tenfold, um, and it's uh, it's made me a stronger advocate. Sort of understanding the the history of um, agrarian thought, but also the this history. One of the great things I've learned is this in depth history of how American agriculture came from Europe to you know the steps and stages along the way that made it what it is today, and hopefully we can look back. I mean, I always. I'm always fond of saying, you know, we're looking back so that we can bring the past back to the, the future because there were certainly some some things that we used to do a couple hundred years ago that were really correct. I'm not saying everything was right, but there were a lot of correct things that we did that we forgot. And, um, you know, I, one of my, you know, one of the big things...